Good evening. That was only marginally good. How about this? Shalom. Okay, that's a lot better. Who remembers me from last time? Okay, who remembers my jokes? I'm glad you don't. Good. They'll, they'll fly again. Um, my name is Ryan Carp. For all, who doesn't remember me, actually? Okay, a handful of you. I'll briefly tell you about myself. Uh, you are a wonderful church who partners with my wife, Jessica, and me and our family to reach Jewish people with the gospel in a little city north of here called Chicago. I, uh, I'm a missionary, which means I do outreaches, I conduct events, I do conferences, I do one-on-one -on -one ministry, I do street outreach, we're doing um, college ministry at Northwestern and DePaul, we're doing Chicago Cubs ministry. They're going to be in the playoffs, which means that they're going to be out, so we're going to do a lot of ministry around Wrigley Field, believe it or not, can you imagine? Um, and then I get to oversee, as the Midwest director and Chicago director, a lot of wonderful staff from Cleveland, Indianapolis. Chicago, Milwaukee, and Minneapolis as well. So we have our work cut out for us, and the Lord has been doing some amazing things, and I will tell you more about that as we go along tonight. But I am just so grateful for your partnership, for your prayer, and the reason that I think that this ministry is growing, besides the fact that the Lord is blessing, is he's probably blessing because some of you are talking to him. So I just appreciate you all and your partnership. Um, I was raised in a mixed marriage household in Washington, D.C., which means I had a Jewish parent and one non-Jewish parent, and it wasn't until my father was invited to a church, kind of like this, outside of Washington, D.C., where he was introduced to Jesus in a Jewish way that it changed our lives. After three months of him fighting with whether a Jewish person can believe in Jesus and still be Jewish, he finally gave his heart to the Lord. He absolutely was still Jewish in his mind. I came to faith about a year and a half later at the age of 10. Any teenagers in here? Enthusiasm. Uh, anybody have a teenager? Anybody have a teenager out of the house? Someone who was a teenager who's now out of the house. Who's been a teenager? Okay. Whose husband acts like a teenager? All right, good. We never stop. It's a lot of fun. Um, let me ask you this. How much do teenagers think they know? How much do they actually know? I just lost the teenagers. <laughs> now listen, I'm going to defend the teenagers for a second. I was very surprised as I grew out of my teenage years how much my parents learned. <laughs> Thank you for someone. If I have to explain a joke, it's not funny. If you don't laugh, you have no sense of humor. Um, I was, I think, a relatively typical teenager. I wanted what the world said was fun. I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And in the days before social media, I understood that the only way to feel value and to feel good about myself was to look to other people for my sense of worth. If you've ever lived that way or if you currently live that way where you're always looking to other people for approval so that you feel okay with yourself, you know how horrible that actually feels. It's paralyzing and nobody can see the stuff going on in your head, but it, actually, it absolutely feels horrible. And I found myself after a few years of this at the age of 19 screaming profanities to the top of my lungs in a townhouse development in suburban Maryland at 2 a.m. I was miserable. My grades were going bad, and the cops get called on me, and I get my friends in trouble. The very people that are supposed to like me are now mad at me. And after multiple years of this, I finally go to my parents, and they introduce me to a friend of theirs who disciples young men. 
And for the first time, after years of depression, after years of this, this sort of mental exercise that's going on in my head that never seems to get anywhere, never makes me feel any better, I started reading this book with him. And this book made all the difference, and I realized I had been living a lie. And that lie was that I thought I had to manufacture my sense of value. And in reality, when I was 10 years old and I put my life into Jesus' hands and asked him to forgive me of my sins, he put himself, he put his spirit into me and gave me all the value that I could ever want. And just realizing that and starting to walk in that made all the difference. I didn't have to worry all the time about what everybody else thought of me so that I felt okay with myself. So I was all of a sudden powerful. And to mark that occasion, I decided I was going to go away and just sort of regroup with God. And so I went on a Jewish college trip to Israel. The only problem is I outed myself as a believer. And so they kicked me off the trip. And instead of being uh, upset with them, the first thing I did was say, they're not them, they're us. They're me. They're my people. The second thing is I wasn't angry. My heart was broken for my people. And so I decided after that that I needed to share the gospel with them and I needed to get to know the Lord and his word better so that I could effectively do that. So I switched colleges, went to Bible college, went to seminary, and I've been reaching Jewish people with the Lord for almost the past 20 years. First in New York City, then uh, first in Philadelphia, then New York, then D.C., and now in Chicago for the past eight years. So that's a little bit about me. Uh, Chosen People Ministries, the ministry with whom I work, is over 125 years old. We're in 19 different countries, essentially wherever you have Jewish people living, all different shapes and sizes, we are there trying to reach them with the gospel. So 19 different countries. America's our largest. Israel's our second. But we have lots of different places from New Zealand to Australia to England to Germany to Canada, you name it. So as we get started, I'm going to ask you to do something a little unorthodox, okay, just to loosen you up a little bit. I want you to just kind of scoot forward on your chairs just a little bit. Scoot forward. I know it's weird. Just go with me on it. Scoot forward, all right? And I want you to put your hands up, and I want you to shout, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! All right, so when anybody asked how that missionary Ryan was, you can say I was on the edge of my seat with my hands raised saying, Hallelujah! All right? All right. You know, it's the stupidest joke, but I love it every time. All right. So I want to get started tonight. Pastor Matt asked me to talk about a Jewish holiday, but to go a little bit more in depth than I normally do, which was a nice thing to ask. So we can do that tonight. And essentially, I had to choose. Does anybody know how many holidays, Jewish holidays, in the Bible I have to choose from? A bunch. Anybody want to guess? I heard a number over here. 28's too high. Seven's too low. Eight is the correct answer. And if you want to include Hanukkah, it's only mentioned in the book of John, and that makes nine. Okay? But that one wasn't commanded by God. It was just celebrated by the people. Um, That's a whole other message, which is wonderful, by the way. So I had eight holidays to choose from. And I thought, which one am I going to choose? Well, the fall is upon us, so there are three fall holidays. So we're going to start, and you're going to be doing some page flipping tonight. I want to prepare you. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah chapter 14. After Genesis, 
Now, I don't know if you spend a ton of time in Zechariah. I don't spend a ton, but I spend a little bit. But you get to these chapters, Zechariah 12 uh, through 14, and they're really interesting. They talk about the future. They talk about the future. Now, essentially what we're going to talk about tonight is a holiday that tells us about the future of our lives, especially people who have put their faith in Christ. So look at Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Stop there. The day of the Lord. Have you heard this phrase, the day of the Lord, before? This is a big phrase. Usually, you have to think end times, okay, when it's the day of the Lord. And how does the Lord usually display himself on the day of the Lord? Do you know? Judgment. Vengeance. This is a scary day for an enemy of God, okay? So that's preparing us. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Not a good thing. We're talking about the future here. So all the nations coming against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the house is rifled, the women ravished, half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So essentially they're under siege by everybody who's an enemy of the Jewish people. And we're going to find out in a second they're an enemy of God. But look at verse 3. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of the mountain shall move toward the south. Let's stop there for a second. Why is that verse, verse 4, important in my ministry? Anybody have an idea? Who's going to step foot on the Mount of Olives? It says in verse 3, the Lord, right? Now, if the Lord steps foot on the Mount of Olives, we know he's going to be in the form of, who said it? Somebody said it. You said it earlier. Jesus, right? Why is that a big deal in my ministry? Specifically reaching Jewish people with the gospel. One of the objections that Jewish people give about Jesus is that the Messiah we are waiting for is not divine, is not God. In other words, the Messiah is a mere human just like us. I was talking with uh, an Israeli guy uh, who was near my house in Chicago. We were having a really nice conversation, and I asked the Lord previously to just give me an opportunity to share the gospel with him. And so I was just waiting for that opportunity, just talking with him, because he had made a presentation to, to a bunch of uh, fellow believers, Christians, Gentile believers. But when I go up to him and I start speaking a little bit of Hebrew, I know the lingo, I mention I'm an Israeli citizen, he goes, oh, okay, and the conversation changes a little bit. Because, oh, you're mishpucha, you're family. You're, you're like me. So our, our conversation turns honest. And I'm asking him how he likes talking to Christians about Israel and how he really enjoys it. And then I see an opening and God just helps me to go for it. And some of the words that come out of my mouth, I, I'm telling you, they weren't mine. And I say, but how do you not believe in Jesus? And he looked at me because the presentation that he gave that night, you would think he believed in Jesus. He said things like, I love Jesus. I read Jesus. And any Christian 
who's listening to a person in their church would think, oh, of course, he's a Christian. He knows the Bible very well. He's basically like our pastor. But I knew he didn't. I just knew it because I listened to his words. So I said, how do you do it without believing in Jesus? And he, he went, what are you talking about? Like feigning ignorance and defense, you know? And I said, well, you don't believe in Jesus. And he goes, okay. <laughs> I said, he said, well, you don't, I don't believe in him now. I'll believe in him when he comes again. And I said, well, why? And then he talked to me about the expectation the Jewish people have. The Messiah is supposed to bring what? Peace and a kingdom and be a king. So he goes, what he's essentially saying is he's sitting on the fence and he's trying to sound good to Christians because he wants them to come to Israel so he can be their tour guide. And so I go, okay, so you're telling me that all you, all you think of Jesus is he'll probably be the Messiah if he does the job. But yet you told everybody in that room that you read Jesus and you love Jesus. My brother, you can't do that. Either you believe what he says and he says he's the Messiah or you don't. And moreover, and this is what God has. I asked, why don't you simply say, if you tell me and everybody else in that room that you think Jesus is just wonderful and you like his words and you probably believe his words, then why don't you just say, Anima amin hayom. I believe in Jesus today, right now. And I cornered him. <laughs> now this was going back and forth and one of the pastors, was, it was like what, they were watching the U.S. Open. <laughs> and he goes, he looks at me straight forward and he goes, because we don't believe he's God. That's usually when somebody's got you, right? My response was, oh, is that it? And he goes, yes. And I go, oh, that's not a problem. And he goes, how is that not a problem? I said, well, don't you know how many times God showed up in the Bible as a man? He goes, what are you talking about? I go, you think it's impossible for God to show himself as a human? Please. I said, who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day in the book of Genesis? I said, who showed up to Abram while he was sitting under the oaks of Mamre after he was recuperating from his circumcision? And he goes, that wasn't God. I go, read it. It says his name in Hebrew, the one we don't say. And he goes, no. I said, who wrestled with Jacob? Who showed up in the fiery furnace with Daniel's friends? And then I go, and you quoted from Zechariah. Ze you turn over a few chapters, Zechariah 14. How in the world does God not have a body, but somehow in verse 4, he's got a foot? That is, okay. And his response was, you know. And the pastor was really concerned that we were arguing, right? Two minutes later, I was inviting him to my house for lunch. I mean. But this is a really important... We haven't even gotten to the message today. Okay. So, Zechariah 14. So, this is the day of the Lord. The Lord is going to be the Savior. He's going to show up. We know that this hasn't happened yet. So, it's still future even for us today in the 21st century. Now, look over um, to verse 12. And this shall be the plague which will, which, with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. That's a wild verse. I just wanted to read it. Uh, Go to verse, uh, go to verse um, 15. Such also shall be the plague uh, on, the, on the horse and the mule and the camel and the donkey 
and all the cattle that will be in those camps, so the plague shall be. So he's explaining, the, uh, Zechariah is explaining the day of the Lord, and he's saying, this is how the Lord will win. This is how he'll come against those nations. But look at verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles. Does anybody know the Hebrew name for the Feast of Tabernacles? Say it. Nobody. Okay. It's Sukkot. Sukkot. Has anybody celebrated Sukkot recently? So you know it hasn't happened yet, right? So I thought, let's, let's talk about this holiday that if you, where if you have put your face in Jesus, it means that somehow you're going to celebrate it in the future. We're all going to celebrate it in the future. All the nations that are still there and all the Jewish people and all the Christians who've put their faith in Jesus. Anybody who recognizes that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of hosts. So let's turn to everybody's favorite book, which of course is... Steve, what's your favorite book? No, not Romans. No, no. Ma'am, what's your favorite book? Psalms? No. Come on, guys. Leviticus. Leviticus. You know Pastor Matt's favorite book is Leviticus. Your pages are worn thin. So turn back to Leviticus chapter 23. And I'm going to give you a very brief understanding of Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 gives us the snapshot of a year, a religious year in the life of the Jewish people. It lists eight holidays the first of which happens every seven days, and it's the Sabbath. That's one holiday. Then there are seven more, and they're divided into two sections, the spring holidays and the fall holidays. The spring holidays are like Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and the Feast of Weeks. Now, you probably have heard of Passover before. It's what Jesus did when he celebrated with his disciples the night that he gets betrayed, right before he gets crucified. Passover, we celebrate that God brought us out of the land of Egypt from slavery to freedom by the death of a lamb and the blood shed of a lamb. For Christians, that foreshadowed when Jesus, the Lamb of God, would willingly shed his own blood. And if you apply it to your heart and soul, then God will pass over you and you will go from slavery and sin to freedom in Christ. Not a coincidence that he was crucified on Passover. But then the next holiday in Leviticus 23 is. The, the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits happens on the Sunday after the Sabbath of the week of Passover. So if Passover falls on a Thursday, what day is the Sabbath? What is it? Saturday. What's the day after the Sabbath? Sunday. So it always fell on the Sunday after Passover. What happened on the day after the Sabbath of the week of Passover when Jesus was crucified. He resurrected, absolutely. Now this holiday, there's not much to be said about it except it's a harvest holiday. The barley would begin to come in and you would take the first fruits of the barley harvest, raise it up to heaven, wave it to God and thank him for it because you know that it was because of him that, that the barley came and it was because of him that the rest of the harvest would come. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. 
He was raised up like the barley, and we know that God is the one who raised him up, and it's a promise that all who put their faith in him will be raised up later. All of these are separate messages, okay? Not a coincidence that he was raised on a Jewish holiday. Fast forward seven weeks. Also in Leviticus chapter 3, starting in verse 15, you have a holiday that happens seven weeks plus one day after Passover. What's seven times seven? Plus one. You know it as Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 2, that's the story of Pentecost. What happens uh, according to Jewish tradition? That's the day we celebrate when we received God's commandments at Mount Sinai. So 50 days after we came out of Egypt, we're at Mount Sinai receiving those Ten Commandments. What happens on the same day, thousands of years later, after Jesus resurrects from the dead? The Holy Spirit is given. On Mount Sinai, the law is given. On Mount Zion, the Spirit is given. At Sinai, 3,000 people die from lack of faith. Remember, they come down, and what do they, he comes down, and what does he see? The worshiping of the golden calf, right? What happens in Acts chapter 2, the day that the Spirit of the Lord is given, and the disciples start preaching Christ? 3,000 people accept the Lord. We hear thunder, we see lightning, and we, the mountain is covered in fire. In Acts, we have a loud rushing wind, and there's tongues of fire. In Jewish tradition, we are told that all Jewish people heard the, God speak the commandments in their own language. All Jewish people of all kinds. In Acts chapter 2, miraculously, all of these people were able to hear and understand the words of the disciples in their own languages. Now, all of these things are not a coincidence. God designed it this way. Then we are separated by the harvest. Okay, that's everybody working in the field. We have no holidays. Then we get to the fall holidays. Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets in Leviticus 23. It's a day where we celebrate the blowing of trumpets. Then we have the Day of Atonement 10 days later, Yom Kippur. That is the day where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a goat to atone for all of Israel's sin. Not just him, but all of the nation. Okay? And then we finally have the Feast of Tabernacles. So if the spring holidays were instrumental when it came to how Jesus, um, how Jesus worked with his creation the first time he came, then it would make sense that the fall holidays also have to do with how God is going to handle his creation in the future. The Feast of Trumpets was just a day of trumpeting. Normally when you trumpet in the Old Testament, it's for celebration, warning, or the announcement of a king. I think, and this again, a lot more Bible study than this, I think the Feast of Trumpets is predictive or forecasts or prophesies the return of Christ, the return of the king. Because whenever you see it, whether it's in 1 Corinthians, Matthew, or, or Thessalonians, you see that he comes back with the sound of a trumpet every single time. The Day of Atonement. I think the Christians are doing fine because they're with the Lord. The only problem is everybody who hasn't had that experience, who hasn't put their faith in Christ, they still have to deal with judgment. In Romans chapter 11, it says that all Israel will be saved. And I think that's a super miraculous thing that happens to the Jewish people once they see him riding on the clouds of heaven at the Feast of Trumpets. I think supernaturally, the Jewish people will accept the Lord. If you were to go back to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, 
it says, they will look on me whom they have pierced. All right. A lot of catch up and overview. But what about this Feast of Tabernacles? Look in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall uh, have a holy convocation. <clears throat> and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work. Now, go down to verse 40. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of what kind of tree? Palm. Keep that in mind the boughs of leafy trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in, what does your Bible say? Booths? Anybody else have a different? Tabernacles, okay. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. We call it Sukkot. Okay, which are tabernacles or booths. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generation may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, if you've ever gone through an Orthodox Jewish community or Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles, it's an interesting place to be. Because all around, in their yards, in their front yards, and in some neighborhoods in Brooklyn, they'll even shut down the street, you have these giant ramshackle huts, these booths, these sukkahs, these tabernacles. And yes, my wife forces me to put one up, my Gentile wife, okay? I say forces just because I'm exhausted from all the ministry during these holidays. But my kids love it. So we have a booth in our, in our backyard. And we're supposed to eat in it traditionally, and we're supposed to sleep in it traditionally. And later on, in the, uh, actually earlier in the Bible, and then once more later in the, uh, in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, it says that this holiday is a pilgrimage holiday, which means that Jewish men, 20 years of age and older, are supposed to go to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. So the Feast of Tabernacles would have been a crazy, crazy busy place. Also, according to tradition, this is not in the Bible, but this is from rabbinic sources, there was a ceremony called the Illumination Ceremony where they would erect giant candelabras in the temple and they would light them all at one time and it would be as bright as day. Uh, the rabbis say, if you've, you've never seen beauty until you've experienced the Illumination Ceremony in Jerusalem. Right? Remember, no electricity. So this is a, a big deal. So, it's important to understand what the future of the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement is to understand what the future of the Feast of Tabernacles is. Remember, the Feast of Trumpets prophesies when the Lord will return, when the King returns, Jesus. The Day of Atonement talks about when He will save His people. The King returns, the King saves His people. 
in terms of the future, in terms of, the, of God's plans for the future, what, ha- what is there left? What's left after he's returned, he saved the people, then what? What do you think? The kingdom. All that's left is for him to fix and replace all the things that Adam's sin and our sin have wrecked. Look around you. We wouldn't have to pray for people with sickness anymore. We wouldn't have to pray for restored relationships anymore. We wouldn't have to pray for healed healed marriages anymore. We wouldn't have to deal with uh, children with behavioral issues anymore. We wouldn't have to bury people who die too prematurely anymore. In fact, both Isaiah and Revelation say there will be no more tears and no more death. This is what Jewish people are waiting for. The reason, one of the reasons they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, and this has been said to me numerous times, I was doing a book table one time, and I was waiting for people to talk to me, and finally this Orthodox man starts to walk up to me, we make eye contact, and I'm psyched, and he starts to open his mouth, and I'm thinking, great, he's going to hear the gospel, but instead he makes a snarky comment, and he says, if he, he wouldn't even say his name, if he is the Messiah, where is the kingdom? Normally that might shut you up, but I didn't know what to say except the Lord knew what to say. And so I said, brother, you're totally right. The Messiah does bring the kingdom. We believe the same thing. And if you've put your faith in Christ, you actually do believe the same thing. You just believe that Jesus, the Messiah, brings the kingdom in his second coming. Jewish people don't believe the Messiah comes twice. They believe he comes once and he will bring peace and a kingdom. Now, why is it important that it's Sukkot? What does Sukkot commemorate? It commemorates that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with mighty miracles, and he set us up in a camp in the wilderness. And for the first time in hundreds of years, the people to whom God made promises to their fathers actually dwelled with the Holy One. On one hand, it wasn't great because, you know, they weren't permanent houses, they were tents. But on the other hand, all they had to do was look toward the center of camp. And do you know what was in the center of camp? The tabernacle. And what was over the tabernacle? The Shekinah, the Shekinah. How did it look? Fire by night and a pillar of smoke by day. Cloud by day. They never had to question whether God was with them. And when God wanted the entire camp to move, all he would do is raise that pillar of fire or or cloud and move it. And everybody would pick up their tents and they would move. It was so picturesque of just living and dwelling with God. And we see these phrases in scripture like, and he will be their God and they shall be his people. And we kind of skip over that. But keep in mind, for most of the Old Testament, the Jewish people did not see God as their God. Not because God was distant, but because they distanced themselves from him. So what that describes is a beautiful, harmonious relationship where they are together. God saves people from bondage and brings them to freedom. Jesus saves you from bondage and sin and brings you to freedom in new life in Christ. Do you start to see the parallel? But it wasn't great because they weren't yet in the promised land. They were supposed to get to the promised land. That's what we were waiting for. A land flowing with what? 
milk and honey. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, also after Genesis. Revelation 21. By the way, one of the one of an interesting outreach I did one time, I decided to do an experiment. In the neighborhood where we have our, our building, uh, it's a very Jewish Orthodox neighborhood in Chicago, and we are having a hard time, I'll be very honest, reaching Orthodox Jewish people with the gospel. It's a very closed community. They're not likely to talk to you when they're within their own community. They might talk to you when they're outside of their community and none of their people can see you, whether you're Jewish or not. And if you're a Jewish believer, you're a threat. They don't want to talk to you. Believe it or not, you actually have more of an opportunity to talk to them if you're a Gentile believer, because they just figure you believe in Jesus. Great, I'll send Gentiles in all day long. So I thought, you know what? If they're not going to talk to me about Jesus, maybe they'll research about Jesus. And so we have this really interesting website. I created a whole bunch of really nice, attractive postcards. And all I wanted to do was see if the traffic would go up on the website. This website has incredible um, gospel testimonies of Jewish people from all walks of life, different ages, different places. Okay? If you haven't seen it, go to ifoundshalom.com. So I took my intern. I said, are you up for doing an outreach at 1030 at night? He goes, sure. The Lord gave us a really beautiful night in Chicago. Doesn't often happen. We were in our T-shirts with backpacks on, uh, and it was, it was like 75 degrees out. And this was my whole thing. I knew where all the Jewish people lived because it was Sukkot. And all I had to do, two things. Number one, look for where the sukkahs were because every single Jewish house will have a sukkah, every single one. Number two, look for places with minivans because Orthodox people have tons of kids. So all I did was look for those and we would go around and we kept putting the postcards into people's, you know, under their windshield wipers. At 10.30 at night, obviously it's not light outside, you know, and we get to 11.30, and all of a sudden, there's bright lights behind us, and they're red and blue. And I go, okay. I said, Carlo, just chill out, slow down. Make sure they know you don't have anything. Um, this is in Chicago, and so I can't see them because they're shining their light at us, and they... They eventually approach us because, you know, we're in T-shirts and we have a backpack. I mean, we're not, we're not holding anything. And they said, what are you doing? I said, oh, I give him a postcard. I said, we're, <laughs> we're putting these postcards in the cards. And he goes, he looks at it and he goes, uh. I said, why? What's the problem? He goes, we've received several phone calls. <laughs> they told us you were going around checking the door, the door latches of all the cars, you know, trying to see what was open so maybe we could steal something. I go, oh, no, we're not doing that. We're just putting this literature in every car. And he goes, come on. I know the neighborhood. Can you please not do that? And I go, is it against the law? And he goes, please, we're going to keep getting calls and people are going to get very upset. But that's an interesting Sukkot story. <laughs> um, so we go to Revelation 21. By the way, they're supposed to invite guests in. So if you ever come across somebody with a sukkah, linger a little bit too long and see if they invite you in. Revelation 21, verse 1. 
And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold the what? The dwelling place? What else? Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, which is a reference to the book of Isaiah. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. When's the last time we saw the tree of life? Genesis. So first, first chapter of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible. Which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. They shall need, there shall be no night there. No night. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. The tabernacle of God is with men, and they will be his people, and he will be their God, and somehow this new kingdom will be illuminated like never before. Meanwhile, back in the desert, God illuminated the night by being a pillar of fire, because I don't know if you've ever been in the desert or in a rural area at night when there's no lights. It's Really dark. Are you laughing because it's relatively rural here? Yeah, okay. The future of the Feast of Tabernacles. No wonder Zechariah 14 says that all the people will go up and will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? Because they acknowledge the King of Kings, the Lord of Hosts, the Messiah, and they celebrate with him constantly. Because now there's a truly tangible presence of our king dwelling in our midst. I guarantee you that if Jesus, Yeshua, was sitting right here, the whole service would be looking different, and you wouldn't be listening to me, and you wouldn't be listening to Pastor Matt, would you? You'd be basking in his glow, in his light. You might worship him. You might ask him questions. And questions I would like to ask are, what does manna taste like? Dinosaurs? Don't get it. Uh, lots of questions, but the point is everything would be focused on him because he is deserving of our praise and because we've devoted our life. The whole reason you're in this room is because we want to be in his presence and because we have hope to be in his presence and because we know that we don't want tears and we don't want pain and we want our sins to be taken away and we don't want to look to other things for our sense of glory and self-assurance. It's all because of him. You know that age-old question, what's the correct answer in Sunday school for children? Jesus. It's literally all because of Jesus. We will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles because he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. And as simple as that sounds, it is so much more amazing. But it doesn't stop there. I think that the Jewish people in the time of Jesus kind of understood this concept. Turn with me to John chapter 12. 
They kind of understood that they really wanted to be in the midst of God's kingdom in his presence. They got that concept. John chapter 12, verse 20. It's a week before his betrayal. Less than a week before his betrayal. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. What kind of branches did they take? Palm branches. Do you remember that from earlier? What kind of branches were used in building these sukkahs and for celebrating Feast of Tabernacles in Leviticus? Willows, leafy trees, and palm branches. And they cried out, Hoshana, Hosanna. Guess what the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles is called? The Hoshana Rabbah, coming salvation. They literally said the name of the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They will, according to Zechariah 14, it's only when they recognize that he is the king that they will go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 14, then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, and then he goes into the city. So we call it the triumphal entry. I think it's both glorious and also tragic. On one hand, I think they understood that the king of kings and the lord of lords was actually in their midst at that moment. Granted, he wasn't in all of his splendor and glory, but he was in that moment. They thought he was the savior. My question is, how many people turned their back on him five days later when they saw him hanging on a cross? But there's one more thing. One more. You notice it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. Baruch Chabah B'Shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who represents the Lord. Blessed is the one who speaks for the Lord. Now, Jesus also says, you will not see me again, Jerusalem, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He again Quotes Psalm 118. And believe it or not, in many Jewish weddings, when the groom comes out, this is what is proclaimed. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You might go, well, why is that significant? Look at John 14. Turn over just one. This whole idea of dwelling with God has everything to do with a marriage being fully intimate and consummated. Chapter 14, uh, look at verse 1. Jesus says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. And you might say, well, why are you quoting that? Jewish tradition, and by the way, you can see this in Assyrian Christian tradition today. Did you know there are still Assyrians? Assyrians. A-S-S-Y-R-I-A-N-S. Assyrians. Like from the Bible. 
They're mostly Christian. They pretty much all live in Chicago. Um, and I've experienced one of these. A friend of, uh, I performed a wedding for a friend of mine who married an Assyrian girl. Um, and it, she asked, do you want to come see what happened at the wedding? I go, oh, yes, absolutely. So we go, and we're just those weird people standing on the sidewalk outside of a house. And there's lots of people gathered, 70 to 100 people gathered outside the house. And inside the house, there's 50 more people. And all of a sudden, someone starts banging on the drum. And someone starts playing the flute. And there's just music and dancing, and everybody is waiting with anticipation. And then, guess what? The groom shows up. Everybody's waiting for the groom. And what does he do? He goes and gets the bride from her father's house and takes her. Now, in their tradition, and they're celebrating, they're hooping and hollering, they're, going, they're doing this thing. Right? I can't do it. But they're doing that. The women are. And they go to the church to get married. But the idea is that he is taking her to be one with her at his father's house. Traditionally, in the Old Testament, you would just build on to your father's house, or you would have a place to stay in your father's community or on his land. Jesus says the same thing. When we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we're not only considering the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, is the one speaking for the Lord, but also that he is the bridegroom. And we are waiting for him, if you've put your faith in Christ, to come and take his bride. And as non-manly as that sounds, men, that's what we are. And we don't know the time. The bride in that Assyrian wedding didn't know the time. By the way, half of those Assyrians are Jewish. They just don't know it. I think they're left over from the Babylonian and Assyrian captivity. Every Assyrian I know has a Hebrew name. It's bizarre. Totally. One's name's Beit Eliyah, which means house of Elijah. Another one's Yalda, which means little girl. But the point is, they all have Hebrew names. But when the groom takes his bride, they go to become one in his dwelling. We are waiting for the return of Christ, for him to save his people, and for him to take us so that we can finally be in perfect communion with him, no longer separated by the flesh of these bodies. Now we have glorified, sparkly bodies, and we get to dwell with the Lord, and you can do whatever you want. Maybe you dance, maybe you scream, holy, 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 maybe you sit on the edge of your seat saying hallelujah, but chances are everything focuses on him because you are dwelling with him. I'll finish with this story. There was an older woman named, um, named Bobby. I've, I've written this in some of our prayer letters. I did change her name, um, but her name is Bobby. She was a crotchety old woman. She was not fun to be around. She was not healthy. She walked in with a walker or she, she rode on a wheelchair, but her Christian neighbor took it upon herself to invite her to our outreach services. And she didn't know what to think because she hadn't been to a synagogue probably since she got married when she was, you know, in her early 20s. But she sat down at our outreach services, first for Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. She was very confused because she didn't want to acknowledge that she had any sin. She didn't care about it. She didn't think she needed any salvation. But on Rosh Hashanah, traditionally, it's when you acknowledge your sin. Now, at our outreach services, we give a clear gospel presentation. 
but there are a lot of the familiar songs because they're biblical uh, melodies. So then she came back the next week for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. We do an even clearer gospel presentation. And she got so mad at me. So I spoke that evening. I shared the gospel as clearly as I could. I laid it out, and I gave you an ultimatum. Either you're with him or you're not. And she comes up to me with an angry face and with a walker, and she looks at me and she goes, I know the Dalai Lama. Well, pretty sure she didn't know the Dalai Lama. <laughs> By the way, she knew the Dalai Lama. Uh, when I went over to her house and visited her, sure enough, there's a picture of her and the Dalai Lama. Anyway, I know the Dalai Lama. And I go, okay. And she goes, are you telling me that if the Dalai Lama were to die, he's not going to heaven? And I said, Bobby, the only thing I can tell you is what the Lord tells us in his word. Unless your sins have been forgiven, you cannot spend eternity with him. And the only way to have your sins forgiven is to put your faith in Yeshua, Jesus, so that he can cleanse you from your sin. And she just went off in a huff. Well, I don't like that. And she told uh, my staff person that I don't like Ryan very much. And she told my colleague Roy, I can't stand that guy Ryan. And so I just kept visiting her. <laughs> and I helped her with her Kindle. And every time she talked to me, she would go, Ryan, I have 12 diseases. Twelve disease. That's how. Okay, talk about an identity. Twelve diseases, and I think I'm gonna die soon. And my response was usually something like, "Listen, Bobby, let's just start making good choices. Let me pray with you. Let me, you know." And she was slowly warming up, and then eventually it just became so overwhelming. I think I'm gonna die soon. That the response came, and it was, "You're probably right." Right. This is not necessarily how you would do ministry, but this is what we did. You're probably right, and she kind of took notice. So maybe you should get this whole sin thing taken care of. And she goes, okay. And she put her faith in Christ, and she prayed to receive him. And then two weeks later, she passed. So from Rosh Hashanah, Feast of Trumpets, where she didn't want to recognize her sin, to the Day of Atonement, where she didn't like that people had to be forgiven of their sin. But now she's the one who's not in a walker anymore not in a wheelchair anymore, and she's dancing. And in that two weeks, she would say, okay, you're my rabbi, you're my rabbi. And she started to pray, and she started to read the Bible. And then the Lord said, okay, time to come home. The bridegroom came for his bride. This is the type of stuff that's happening in our ministry. And to give you one more picture, on a Friday night, I have three things going on in the city, just in the city. Forget the suburbs. In the north side of the city, I have a young adult uh, community gathering where there's non-believing Jewish people. I'm leading something uh, downtown, and then one mile further downtown, I have something for students, all in one evening with our staff. And it wasn't like that when I moved to Chicago. The Lord is moving, and I'm so happy. If you want to pray, we need more staff, and we're praying about opening a facility um, called a Messianic Center, where we can do all things from plant a congregation to host coffee houses, to do kids' ministry and family nights and challah baking, and sky's the limit. But we've, we have a couple of these other places in Tel Aviv, Berlin, uh, Brooklyn, Australia. So why not Chicago? There's only 350,000 Jews who don't know the Lord. 
Before I close, are there any questions, comments, concerns, criticisms, or conspiracy theories? <laughs> Honestly, I'm looking at the clock. It says I'm done early. So there's no questions. I'm going to do one more thing with you. Um, did you all receive one of these when you came in? Who didn't? Oi, oi, oi. All right. Um, many of you have seen this before. Um, if you would like to keep in touch with us, we send out monthly prayer letters so you know how to pray. You were praying for Bobby if you had been receiving those. You were praying for our ministry center if you have been receiving those. You are praying for all sorts of things. We like to update you because it's what Paul did in Jerusalem. He updated uh, James and all those guys when he was on his missionary journeys. And in turn, we ask that you pray for us. There's no financial obligation for this, okay? So you don't need to do that. But you tear it off and you write legibly, I will give you a free book tonight. Isaiah 53 explained, an excellent resource for you. And if you run across a Jewish non-believer, a great resource but only give it to them and let them borrow it because they have to give it back and it gives you an opportunity to talk to them about it. So on one side is for your information, on the side is the clock. If you know a Jewish non-believer, please prayerfully consider putting their name and their information. We would like to get in touch with them in some way, shape, or form. Do not worry. They will not know it's coming from you. Okay? So tear that off. Give it to me tonight. I'll, there's a book table in the back. Second, I have this brochure called Host Israelis. This is a way that you can also get involved. I mean, I have mission trips for 18 to 30-year-olds to go to Israel. Not a bad mission trip. 18 to 30-year-olds. The best part is you don't have to pay for it. You get everybody else in here to do that. So, um, And for everybody, people of all ages, you can come to New York and do ministry. But if you want to stay here in Newton and possibly do some ministry to reach Jewish people, Israelis after they're done with their mandatory conscription in the army, they travel the world. They want to explore. They want to find new stuff. And so we initially set up hostels in New Zealand, and dozens and dozens of Israelis, including the prime minister's son, was sitting in our hostel hearing about the gospel. Hostel got almost arrived. And then we said, well, let's train other Christians in New Zealand. So we trained just everyday Christians and we would send them from the hostel to their houses. And then we said, well, they always go through Australia on their way back, so let's train people in Australia. And then we realized there's a possibility of a hosting network. So this is a big ask. This is a prayerful thing. This is something you talk to your spouse about. I realize Newton's not exactly the hotbed of Israeli travelers. <laughs> but I can tell you, I know so many Israelis who start in New York and take road trips through the country because their country is the size of New Jersey. So they just want to see what the world has to offer. And believe it or not, they come traveling, and there might be a possibility that you could host one or two or more. You set the rules. If you say only men, only men. If you say only women, only women. If you say only two nights, only two nights. If you say only a dinner, that's possible too. But prayerfully consider that. Take one of these brochures. You can talk to me about that for more, or my colleague Joseph, who heads up this project, but if we develop this network, which was just launched, and we have maybe 15 to 20 houses so far in the United States, but we'd love to see 100 more, okay? Um, that's something you can do, and uh, just prayerfully consider that.
Any last thoughts or comments before I pray? Okay. Avina Vamalcano, our Father and our King, we praise you because you are worthy of it, and in your word it says that you sit enthroned on the praises of your people. Father, we look forward to the day when we can praise you in person, when we can stream to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles because you are finally, tangibly, visibly in our midst. And we don't even need night anymore because you are, you are just permanently radiant. You illuminate like those candelabras in the temple. But even more, something we can't understand. So Lord, we praise you and we honor you. Father, if there is someone in this room who has never asked for forgiveness of their sins by your death and resurrection, I pray that you would move in their hearts to do that tonight. And I thank you for Newton Bible. I thank you for their dedication to the word, and I pray that you would bless them tremendously in every single way that you can. Fulfill your promise that you gave to Abraham. Those that bless the Jewish people will be blessed. They have blessed the Jewish people, Lord. So bless them in every possible way with health and prosperity, with desire for the word, desire for prayer, desire for new leadership, not to replace Pastor Matt, just for people to step up. Uh, healed relationships, all of the above and more. Hashem Yeshua, in the name of Jesus, amen.